whatever trial, whatever difficulty that you may be facing that might be causing your soul not to feel at rest this morning. When you come to today's text, it comes as a thundering promise of great hope and great joy and great peace. And so I want us to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 today. You can go ahead and turn there. This is another very well-known passage from the Sermon on the Mount, which is the section of Scripture that we've been walking through for several months now. We are trekking through the Sermon on the Mount as part of our sermon series entitled Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which if you're visiting with us today, that's a chronological walk through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus using all four Gospels. So we are, in essence, harmonizing the Gospels as we study the life of Jesus. Now, as you're finding the passage of Scripture, I'm going to see if you guys, I'm going to do a little trivia this morning. Do you guys know who Howard Carter was? I'll give you some clues here in a second. Howard Carter, pretty, you know, non-impressive name, just Howard Carter. There's probably lots of Howard Carters out there, so I'm going to give you some clues. He did something very famous in 1922, I believe. Howard Carter was an archaeologist, okay, Howard Carter was the archaeologist who discovered the tomb of King Tut. Now, if you know the story of Howard Carter, the archaeologist, you know that um, finding King Tut was the reward at the end of a long and very frustrating process in his life. He had, uh, was an archaeologist, became an archaeologist at the age of 17. His mother gave him a spade or, or maybe it was more like a chisel for him to use in his archaeology. And... Uh, he was an aspiring archaeologist. This was the golden age of archaeology. People were going all over the world, especially to Egypt, and finding all kinds of amazing artifacts. And so he went and worked with some other people. And there was this legend of a tomb of a boy king. King Tut is the, what we call him. I can't pronounce the full name, but King Tut. And there was this legend of this tomb of the boy king. And he was bound to determine to be the one who found this famous king who found this tomb. And he searched and he searched and he searched and he had benefactors who supplied the money to keep his search going. But for I believe it was seven long years, nothing. All of his finds turned out to be tombs that were already empty. Grave robbers had already gotten there and emptied them out. And he was getting frustrated. His benefactors were threatening to pull the money back. And he kept persevering. He kept pushing. And finally, the person supplying the money for his, his archaeological dig said, listen, I'm going to give you one more year. One more year. And finally, Howard Carter found some steps that he believed were the right steps that led to this tomb. And he even called the guy who had given him the money and said, meet me here in Egypt. I think I finally found it. Weeks later, the guy shows up and they, they get to the door of this tomb. And he takes that chisel actually that his grandmother or his mother had given him and he uses that to break a little hole open in that that door and he looks in and the guy who's with him asks do you see anything and he famously said yes wonderful things because what he saw in there was just massive amounts of treasures and gold and a wooden carved animals and and in the back, there was a, another chamber that was sealed. And when they opened that chamber, there was the, what do you call it, sarcophagus? that was the right word? Of King Tut. And it's the famous picture you see when you, matter of fact, almost all the brochures of Egypt now have that famous picture of King Tut. Howard Carter refused to give up. He persevered. He refused to allow anything to stand in his way of what he needed to find. And in today's text, we are told to have the same sort of approach that Howard Carter had to finding King Tut. We are supposed to have the same type of approach when we go after God in prayer. We're supposed to go after God in prayer like Howard Carter went after King Tut's tomb. Matter of fact, we are called to pursue God in prayer with much greater perseverance, much greater passion, much greater fervor, because there is a much greater treasure awaiting us. So I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 11. So please stand, if you would, as we read these verses this morning. As I said, this is a very well-known passage of Scripture. You may know it by heart, but the danger of coming to a well-known passage of Scripture, as I've said many times before, is we just sort of gloss over it. 
I want us to really dig deep and ask the Lord to show us something this morning from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. And this is the word of the Lord, and that's why we stand. Beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would give us hearts and minds to see and savor what it is you want us to teach, want to teach us in this text. We ask you to open up our ears. We ask you to open up our eyes. Father, we seek heavenly treasures in your word. Father, we're knocking this morning. We pray that you would open up the door any sort of barrier that might be in between us and our understanding of this word. Father, don't let me be that barrier with my my words and my preparation. Father, I pray that there be anything that I'm going to say in error that you would just strike it. So, Father, give me a mouth to speak as well. We believe, Lord, that if we ask and we seek and we knock, you will give what we ask for. So, God, we ask for these things this morning. We ask for him in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave us these words. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is an absolutely amazing passage of Scripture where Jesus gives us a glorious invitation. An invitation to come and to pray. My my kids like receiving, my girls especially, receiving invitations to like a party or something, right? Right? They'll get in the mail a little colorful um, envelope and they open it up and there's this cute little invitation to somebody's party. And they always get all excited about that. Okay? And, and, and rightfully so. That's an exciting thing to be invited to a party. Well, here in this text here, we have something much more amazing. This is an amazing invitation that Jesus gives us to come and to pray, to ask, to seek, and to knock. Now, as we come to this final portion of the Sermon on the Mount, this final, final last section through the end of chapter 7, many people consider this final portion to simply be a, a list of random moral teachings that Jesus just ends the sermon with. But I see much more structure here than just a bunch of random teachings. Remember, Jesus has been teaching kingdom citizens about kingdom living. Jesus is showing Christians how we are to live, how we are to be distinct in this world. He has shown us the traits that should mark kingdom citizens. He has shown us the influence that kingdom citizens should have in this world. He has shown us the righteousness that sets kingdom citizens apart. He has shown us the way that kingdom citizens are to practice their righteousness, how that should be different from the world. He has shown us the treasure that kingdom citizens should be seeking after. And in this section here, beginning at the very beginning of of chapter 7, he is showing us the relationships that distinguish kingdom citizens from the world. First of all, the relationships that we have with our fellow kingdom citizens, our brothers, which we talked about last week, okay? And this week he's addressing our relationship with the Father, with our Father. How should kingdom citizens approach the Father? In other words, how should kingdom citizens pray? And the first thing I want us to note from this week's text is simply this. Kingdom citizens are all invited to pray. Kingdom citizens are all invited to pray. Jesus is speaking to his followers, and all of his followers, all Christians, receive this glorious invitation. Verse 8 says, for everyone who asks, receives. There is no special class of Christian who has access, has greater access to the Father than other Christians. That is a false teaching. It has plagued many people, it still continues to plague many people in the world that they have to go into a special box 
to speak to a special person who has greater access to the Father. No, Jesus says, everyone who comes to me, all my Christians, all my kingdom citizens have access to the Father. So come, come. I'm inviting you to come. Ask, seek, knock. Jesus is speaking to those who are God's children. And those who are God's children have the privilege of access to the Father because we are God's children. So he's speaking to Christians here, not non-Christians. So this text, just like the whole Sermon on the Mount, is immediately applicable to believers. So my children have greater access to me than someone else's children do. So if my children come and ask for something or want, want my time or, or want to talk to me about something, they have immediate access because they're my children. But someone else's children may not have that privilege. So all who are God's children have this glorious invitation, this glorious privilege to come. We have access, according to Ephesians 2.18, we have access in one spirit to the Father. And thus we have glorious privileges to avail ourselves of, wonderful promises to stand on. Privileges and promises like the ones in this text. So all Christians are invited to pray. Now I use the word invited because I want us to see the great privilege here that we have. But actually, Jesus gives us more than an invitation. This is a command. When Jesus says, ask and seek and knock, okay, he isn't saying, if you're interested in asking, ask. You know, if, if you'd like to seek, then seek. If you feel like knocking, then knock. No, what we are given here by Jesus is one command to pray expressed in three different ways. All three verbs, ask and seek and knock, all three of the verbs here are emphatic in the Greek. Meaning that Jesus is commanding us, expecting us to pray. Prayer is a privilege, yes, a magnificent invitation, but it's also an expectation. It's an invitation, but it's an expectation for all who are truly His. For all who are children of God. Now not only are these Greek verbs imperative, meaning they're commands... They're also present tense active imperatives, meaning that Jesus is calling us to a continuous action. And that's the first sub-point this morning. Kingdom citizens are, are all invited to pray persistently. We are all invited to pray persistently. By using the type of verb he uses, Jesus is saying that we are to keep on asking. We are to keep on seeking. We are to keep on knocking. Present tense, active, imperative. The other present tense form in the Greek would be a one-time action. But that's not the form that Jesus uses here. So I may say to my kids, guys, you need to be doing your chores. Guys, you need to be doing your chores. And that can have two meanings. Number one, if I notice that their chores aren't done, and I mean right now, this one time, guys, you need to be doing your chores. Or it could be during a family meeting, and I want to encourage them to be about the habit of doing their chores. And I say, guys, you need to be doing your chores. I'm certainly setting an expectation of an ongoing action. So here Jesus is telling, no, he he is commanding his disciples to pray in an ongoing, persistent fashion. We are told elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, to pray without ceasing. This means that we are always to be in a posture of prayer. You've heard me say before, it doesn't mean we necessarily walk around with our heads bowed and our eyes closed running into things. But we need to always be in a frame of mind where we are looking to talk to God. We are looking for opportunities to pray. We want to be talking to our Heavenly Father. We need to always be availing ourselves of opportunities to ask God to to meet needs. To ask God to intercede for others. To exalt God for the, for the way he's working. To confess to God our failings. To thank God for his blessings. This should be the believer's life. Continual, constant communication with the Almighty. Always in a posture of prayer. And that's not a mere duty. It's a breathtaking privilege. It's a breathtaking privilege. God could have said, all right, I'm going to open up access to prayer on Sundays between... 10 and noon. Between that time, you you can pray to me. He could have set it up that way, but he didn't. Because we have a high priest who lives, who is always making intercession for the saints, 
We always have access to the Father. And we should be availing ourselves of that access every day. Every moment we should be looking to speak to our Heavenly Father. We have to be continually, persistently asking, seeking, knocking. Persistence in prayer will be drudgery if we do not see this command as an invitation to see wonderful things. If we don't see this command as, a, as an invitation through prayer to knock on a door much greater than the whatever, sarcophagus of King Tut and see much greater treasures. If we don't see that as why we're going to the Lord in prayer and the glorious treasures that he promises in this text, guess what? What I'm saying this morning is just drudgery. Oh, I guess I need to be praying to God persistently. There's wonderful things to be seen in these promises that accompany these commands. And we'll get there in a minute. But for now, let us to see that we're not, only, we're not only supposed to persist in prayer, we are to persevere in prayer, meaning we refuse to quit. We refuse to stop. We're like a, like a, like a dog that's, that's, that's latched onto some sort of scent. Now, Molly, our Labrador retriever, is not a hunting dog. Okay, I know labs are hunting dogs. She is a couch potato dog, all right? And so she, she's very good at just laying there at your feet and occasionally getting up on the couch. That's what she's really good at. But every now and then, every now and then, when she gets out in the backyard, she catches the scent of something. Usually a little um, chipmunk or a squirrel. She's actually got a very ingenious way of hunting squirrels. They get in our gutters and she'll hear the squirrel coming down the downspout. And she'll wait at the side of that downspout, and that squirrel comes out, and she gets it. All right, so she, she, every now and then she gets her hunting on, all right? She, she gets her, her Labrador retriever actually going because it's in her blood. It's in her blood when she latches onto that scent of that animal to go after it. Friends, it should be in our blood. It should be in our blood because we're believers, we're children of God, that we latch on to prayer. It should be in our blood that we persist and that we persevere in prayer. So we persist in two ways. Number one, we pray continually and consistently. And number two, we persevere and don't give up. And Jesus addresses both of those in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 verse 1 says this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So there are both elements. The continual nature of it and the, the perseverance of it, not giving up. So he gave them a parable so they ought, ought to learn to always pray and to not get, lose heart. And he said, verse 2 of Luke 18, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he have find faith on earth? Do we... Latch on to prayer with a type of persistence and perseverance that says we believe that our God is not an unjust judge. We believe he's a father. We believe he has elected us unto salvation. And therefore we believe he will give us justice. We'll treat this text in Luke more fully in due time. But for today, let us simply see that Jesus invites his children to have open and unbroken access to the Father. Therefore, we are to pray persistently, praying always and not losing heart. Now, to drive home the idea that we are to be persistent, Jesus uses the rhetorical tool of repetition here. Ask, seek, knock. Now, to repeat something twice in Jesus' day was to put an exclamation mark on what he was saying. For him to repeat it three times was to put it in caps, underline it, put it in bold font, and put three exclamation points on it. So, for example, okay, God, we are taught in the Scriptures, is not just holy, nor is he just holy, holy, but he is what? He is holy, holy, 
holy. So here, Jesus is not commanding us just to pray, nor to pray and then pray a little more. He is commanding us to pray and pray and pray and don't stop praying. Don't stop. But Jesus is teaching us more than just being persistent. The very verbs he uses as he repeats this call to prayer show us that he also wants us to pray with passion and zeal. He wants us to have a holy urgency. And that's the next blank. Kingdom citizens are all invited to pray urgently. Urgently. There's actually an escalating energy and intensity here in these verbs that Jesus chooses. Ask, then seek, then knock. Asking can be fairly passive, but seeking involves more effort, and knocking involves even more toil and effort. So to, to illustrate it, my, I say I'm in the living room, and my kids are there in the living room with me, and my daughter says, hey, Dad, can I have a snack? And she's sitting right there. I'm right there with her. She simply looks at me and says, hey, Dad, can I have a snack? And I answer her yes or no. And she goes and gets the snack or doesn't get the snack because she's right there. But let's say I'm not in the room. I'm in a different part of the house, two rooms over or something. So she wants the snack. She gets up, and now she has to seek. She has to go find me. Okay, so that requires a little bit more effort. And she asks, can I have the snack? And I answer her yes or no. But let's say I'm upstairs now. I'm in closed doors. I'm studying. I'm in, in the bedroom. I've got the door closed, and I'm doing some study or something. So now she, I'm not in the room, and she begins to seek, and now she has to go up and even make more effort and be bold enough and confident enough to knock on that door and ask the question, Dad, can I, can I have a snack? To ask is to express a simple dependence on our Father. To seek is to display a desire for intimacy with our Father. And to knock is to acknowledge our desperate dependence upon Him. There's an increase in, t- in, in intensity here with these verbs. I don't know where you are with your walk with the Lord right now. I know there are moments in our life where we feel that we are so close to God. It's like we're sitting in His living room. All we have to do is just ask. But I guarantee you that there are others in this room right now who feel like there is a six-foot thick steel door between them and God. And if you're not there, you will be one day. And they are desperate and they are commanded to keep on knocking. Keep on knocking. Yes, you feel like there's this massive barrier between you and God. There's no excuse. Keep on knocking. Ask, seek, knock, passionate, intense, urgent prayer. That is what we are called to. Remember, this is all predicated upon a true relationship. We should be white hot with our love and our passion for our Father and to do His will. Therefore, we pray with fervor and with energy and with gravity. To help us understand this, Jesus often gives us illustrations in the Gospels. And there's one in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Luke chapter 11, verse 5 says this. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because of he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because of his impudence, because of his tenacity, because of his audacity to continue to ask and ask for this food, he'll give it to him. We are invited. No, we are commanded to pray tenaciously, audaciously to our Father in heaven. And our Father is not an unjust judge. Nor is he an annoyed friend. He is a loving father. In a letter that God told the prophet Jeremiah to write to the exiles in Babylon, God says this to his people. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. God's people, God's kingdom citizens are not to have tiny, wimpy, weak, dispassionate, dwindling, two-faced prayer lives. Instead, we are to pray persistently, urgently. And we are to pray confidently. Confidently. 
We're going to pray confidently because in this text, there's not, we're not only given an invitation, which is actually a command, but we're also given a promise. And the promise is simple. God hears and will answer our prayer. So as if to not allow us to miss this point, Jesus tells us that the Father will answer our prayers seven times in today's text. In five verses, Jesus tells us seven times that God will answer our prayers. Count them with me. Verse 7. Ask and it, number one, will be given to you. Seek and, number two, you will find. Knock and, then number three, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, number four, receives. Everyone who seeks, number five, finds. And to the one who knocks, number six, it will be opened. Then jump down to verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, number seven, here we go, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We are to see this text as a promise and therefore pray with rock-solid confidence. We are to see the promise and believe. Christians are to be confident prayers. First John 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Friends, if we are in Christ, meaning that we have believed in his name and the Holy Spirit is in us, overflowing with love towards others, then we should pray with fixed, unyielding confidence. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These are massive promises Jesus gives us. Do we really feel the magnitude of these promises? More importantly, do we really believe them? Do we really believe what Jesus says? I know what some of you are thinking out there. Well, there's an exception clause somewhere there where Jesus is packaged in somewhere. Do we really believe what Jesus says about prayer? Not only are we to ask, seek, and knock, friends, knowing that God hears us and will answer, we are to believe that what we ask for will be given, that what we seek we will find, that when we knock, doors will be opened. We are to pray confidently, friends, and we are also to pray expectantly. Expectantly. We are to knock expecting to receive what we asked for. I mean, we are to pray expecting to receive what we asked for. What we sought for. That the door we were knocking on is actually going to open. Mark eleven twenty four. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. This should be the disposition of true believers, of those who are truly united to the Son. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Listen to these verses. Listen to these promises. Whatever, it will be done for you. It will be yours. I think we are to pray confidently and we are to pray expectantly, believing that God not only hears, but answers our prayers accordingly. Now, I know what you're thinking right now, and I can see the look on some of y'all's faces. You're thinking what I just said is getting us perilously close to walking off a cliff, a cliff that is similar to the health, wealth, and prosperity cliff. Now, before you pull me out of the pulpit, and if I ever do preach the false prosperity gospel, you need to pull me out of the pulpit, I want you to listen to me for the rest of this sermon. Now, I do want to say that this text is one of the most abused texts in all of Scripture. Unfortunately, people do treat this text as if God were a genie in a bottle whose will is at our command. People do use this text to reduce God to some sort of vending machine in the sky who will pour out whatever we want, whenever we want it, however we want it. I am not proposing that our prayer life is like that this morning. That is not what I'm saying. But in order to understand what I am saying, we need to base what we've observed up to this point. We need to base what we have mentioned up to this point 
on a very firm foundation. We need a firm foundation on which the previous statements about prayer stand. We need solid footing on which to ask persistently, urgently, confidently, and expectantly. And when we have the right foundation, friends, we will ask in the right way. So here's, I'm going to go ahead and give you the last two points. Kingdom citizens can pray this way only when we know, number one, what we are to be praying for. And number two, who we are praying to. We can only pray with this absolute rock-solid confidence that God hears us and answers our prayer when, number one, we know what it is that Jesus is commanding us to pray about here. And then number two, who it is Jesus is telling us to pray to. So first of all, what are we to be praying for? Verse 11 says, If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts, good gifts to your children, how much more will your, heavenly, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now this text is not a golden ticket to get anything we desire or want. I for one am glad that that's not how this text works. Because I know, looking back in my life, there are many things that I asked for that I did not receive that I'm glad now that I never received. So I'm glad this is not a genie in the bottle, magic mantra type of text. Okay, not that he's a theologian to emulate or anything. You remember the old Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers, right? Okay, uh, that song, if it ever comes up on the radio, I'm just floods of memories. I'm 1991, 92, college, all that, you know, unanswered prayer song. And the whole song is about... You know, Garth now is looking back in life and, and, and he runs into his old high school sweetheart and he remembers how when he was in high school he prayed fervently to God to, to make that woman his wife and it never turned out and he ends up getting married to someone else. And now he, he sees her and, and now remembers that and is thankful that God didn't answer that prayer. Okay? Maybe, maybe y'all have had that experience. You're on Facebook and you see an old high school friend and you go, oh my, thank you Lord. Okay? I'm sure that's... How people react when they see my picture. Oh, time hasn't treated him well. We, we should be thankful that God doesn't answer all of our old prayers. So th- this is not a text that says, okay, rub the genie the right way and boom, you're going to get whatever you want. I'm so thankful that God didn't answer the prayers that I prayed when my eyes were fixed on earthly things instead of being fixed on heavenly things. You know why? Because God had better things than the earthly things I was asking for in store for me. Much better things. So we need to understand that, understand what these good gifts are that we should confidently expect. What these good things are that Jesus promises the Father will give. These good gifts, these good things are what we are to ask for, what we are to seek for, what we are to knock for. These are the things we're asking for, these good gifts. Now to understand what those are, we need to consider the context. The whole Sermon on the Mount should be driving us to ask for the right things. Let me say that again. The whole context of the Sermon on the Mount should be driving us to ask for the right things. First of all, we've seen this word seek before, haven't we? Back in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those things that were added to us that Jesus speaks of there in Matthew 6, are, are simply our earthly necessities. But we are not to seek those things. God will provide what we need to survive, but we are not to seek those things. We are told to trust God to provide those things to sustain our physical life and not to be anxious about them. We are told to seek higher things. Purer things, better things. We are told to seek the kingdom of God. I I quoted this passage a couple of weeks ago, Deuteronomy 8 8, verse 3. It says this, and this is God speaking about what he's done to the people of Israel while they've been in the wilderness. As Moses is actually recounting what God had done. It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And here's the reason God did that, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God actually held back physical, earthly needs from his own people to teach them to pursue greater heavenly needs. 
I'm going to hold back what you think you want to give you what you need. You don't need bread. You need me. Am I saying that we don't pray for earthly things or for our material needs? No, I am not saying that. Matter of fact, the Lord's Prayer told us to ask for daily bread. But material needs are to be asked for. And then we are told to simply have faith and trust that he will day by day supply for our physical sustenance. But the good gifts, the good things that we are to persistently, urgently, confidently, and expectantly pursue are heavenly gifts, not earthly ones. Heavenly goods not earthly ones. We are to seek the kingdom. We are to primarily seek things above, not things below. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, if, in other words, if you are a Christian, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is what Jesus is calling us to do in today's text. Context, context, context. The whole Sermon on the Mount has led us to this point. Jesus has just called us to live out heavenly traits. He has called us to a higher righteousness. He has called us to a higher law-keeping. He has called us to purity of heart. He has called us to be free from hypocrisy. He has called us to be free from worry. He has called us to make good moral judgments without moral judgmentalism. He has called us to be like Him, to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And at this point in the sermon, certainly the weight of all that majestic truth is on the shoulders of Jesus' hearers. And they must be asking this question, how on earth, Jesus... How can we do what you have just told us to do? And Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. These dispositions that he has called us to are impossible in and of ourselves. They are gifts that come only from the Father. So ask for poverty of spirit. Seek a heart that mourns over sin. When's the last time we ask God, God, give me a heart that is broken over my sin? Seek a heart that mourns over sin. Knock on God's door asking with impudence for meekness. God, give me meekness. God, I'm not meek. God, make me meek. Ask for greater hunger and thirst for righteousness. Seek a merciful spirit. Knock and knock and knock for a pure heart. Men, knock and knock and knock for a pure heart. And keep on knocking. Those are the gifts God wants to give you. Ask, seek, and knock that, you will, that God will make you a peacemaker. Ask, seek, and knock for God to give you steadfastness under persecution and trial. Ask, seek, and knock for these things, and he will give them. It is his joy and it is his pleasure to see us look more like his son. It is his joy and his pleasure and his design to conform us into the image of Jesus. It is his will. It is his desire. To make us like Jesus. It is his will. And so 1 John 5, 14 says this. And this is the confidence. Listen to that word, confidence. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. So stop asking for a new car and ask for a pure heart. And guess what? You won't think Matthew 7, 7 through 11 is a lie. Because a lot of church people think that is baloney. I do not believe Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Because God didn't give me what I ask. It's because you're asking for the wrong things. You see, we have swallowed Satan's lie. And he's convinced us that this whole passage is a fraud. And if you'll be honest, you have felt that way before. 
If you'll simply be honest before the Lord this morning, you have felt that way before when you come to all those passages I read earlier. I don't believe that. God's not answering my prayer. I asked, nothing happened. I sought, I found nothing. I knocked, no answer. We think this passage is a fraud because we're asking for the wrong things. We are seeking the wrong treasures and we are knocking on the wrong doors. James 4, 3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We are to ask for heavenly riches which ultimately is for God's glory. And the heavenly riches are described in the scriptures as things like faith and love and wisdom and knowledge of God and assurance and salvation. I can give you texts where all these things are shown to be the riches that God provides to us in Christ. These are the things we are to ask for, seek after, and knock on doors for. Ask, seek, knock for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are, of course, what? The fruit of the Spirit. When's the last time you asked for the fruit of the Spirit in your prayer time? I mean, really asked. I'm not talking about this. You're, you, you, you do something, and um, you're impatient with your children, and you go to the Lord and say, God, forgive me of my patience. And check that off your prayer list. Okay, I, I confess my impatience to the Lord. Instead of saying, God, forgive me for my patience, you should be asking, God, give me the fruit of patience. I desperately need it. That's how we are to be praying. I know that this is what Jesus is talking about because we can go to the parallel passage in Luke 11. Right after Jesus teaches us to pray with impudence, he says this in verse 9, And I tell you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give? And here's where the text varies from what we just read. How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? That fruit of the Spirit. What are we to be asking for? We're going to be asking for the Holy Spirit to take over. Take over my foolish actions. Make me more like Christ. The Spirit is at work in us, conforming us to the image of Christ, restoring the image of the Father in us. And that's the greatest gift we could ever have. And so God may not answer our prayers for earthly things that we think we need in order to give us greater heavenly treasure that we do need. He may not fix the relationship that you have with a certain person or people or whatever else that you keep praying for that relationship to be fixed. He may not fix it so that he can teach you long-suffering. Isn't that how James views our trials? James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, don't you want to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? And then James says something about how we approach God. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James doesn't say, let anyone who's having a trial ask God to take them away. I think that's what we want. you got all these trials going on in your life, and then James says, well, if any of you is having a trial, then just ask God to take it away. That's not at all what James tells us to do. Because James knows there's better gifts than being, having a comfortable life. And that better gift is wisdom. So ask for wisdom, and guess what? He will give it to you, period. Just believe. Don't doubt. You see, we, have, we, have, we know that when we do seek heavenly spiritual riches, God's means for giving them to us may be through earthly material difficulty and trial. For example, how many of us would say that it's right to pray, to ask, to seek, and to knock for the fruit of righteousness in our life? Well, yes, we want that. You know what Hebrews 12, 11 says? 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We spend our whole life asking, seeking, and knocking for our life to be more comfortable, and God has better things in store for us. We're just not asking for them. We're asking for the wrong things. But the only way we can truly pray like this and receive God's good heavenly things is is to know and absolutely know who it is we're praying to. And that's our last point this morning. To help our feeble minds grasp who it is we're praying to, Jesus gives us a wonderful illustration, verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We are to see that the one who is giving us good gifts is not a distant ruler or a tight-fisted tyrant or a sadistic overlord who likes to watch his children squirm or an angry deity who must be placated. No, he is none of these, heaven forbid. No, our God is loving and gracious and kind and merciful, a benevolent father who designs and works all things together for the good of his children. We must believe that is who our father is. Sometimes the scriptures help us understand God as father by comparing God to our earthly fathers. And other times, like in this text, he helps us understand God as father by contrasting him to our earthly father. So this is similar to last week's argument. It's from lesser to greater. If our fathers know how to give us good gifts, how much more does God know how to give us good gifts? No normal, ordinary father would be so cruel as to swap out their kid's bread for a stone. Bread in Jesus' day looked a lot like, or I should say the stones, they're out in the, in the Judean countryside, it looked a lot like the bread that was cooked in Jesus' day. Now, no normal father would trick his child like that. Nor would any normal father be so callous as to put his child in danger by substituting a snake for the fish, or as Luke said, a scorpion for an egg. This, too, was, would be unthinkable for us. So our Father in heaven, how much more? He's not playing games with us. He's not harming us. His goodness and love toward us is infinitely above that of an earthly father. For all earthly fathers, even in their best moments, have motives and actions tinged by sin. Notice the statement in verse 11. It's quite sweeping and very unflattering. If you then, and remember he's talking to his disciples, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... What, what a statement there about the depravity of man. And remember, Jesus is talking to Christians. All earthly fathers know how to treat their children well, yet we still have motives tinged by sin. And so what Jesus wants us to grasp here is the infinite gap between the goodness of God's motives that are never tinged by sin and what man can merely do. God has pure and perfect motives, plans for all he does, for all that he allows, so we can confidently ask, seek, and knock, knowing that he's perfect and that he hears us. Unlike me. So, so I used that illustration earlier. Let's say my child's asking for a snack, and I'm in the room with them. They ask. If I'm in another part of the house, they go and seek, and they come and knock on the door while I'm studying. You know how I usually react? Because I'm a sinful father, I'm evil. Leave me alone! Just go. I mean, it ha actually, where I study, I don't even have a door half the time. But I, start, I start doing this, right? Just, just, I don't want my kids to think that's the way our Heavenly Father is. I am sinful. I am evil, according to Jesus. He is not. He doesn't give you the stiff arm. If we're praying what we're supposed to be praying... We can trust that he hears us. And he's got good gifts he's going to give us. And the greatest gifts the Heavenly Father can give to his children are heavenly gifts, spiritual gifts. He gives good gifts to all mankind. It's called common grace. But he provides, he provides food to people who don't even ask for it. But for his children, he has glorious heavenly treasures that he's bestowing upon us. It may not feel like he's giving us what is best. When our material and earthly desires go unmet, yet our Heavenly Father is providing for greater needs and giving us greater gifts. I've used the illustration many times. When, I take, when we take our children in to the doctor because they're sick and they need to get a shot, we know what the greater gift is that they need. They need medicine. 
And so we sit them in our arms, put them in our lap, and the doctor comes in, and we are going to allow them to suffer some pain. The doctor's going to take out that syringe with that sharp needle, and he's going to stick it through their skin, and they're going to scream, and they're going to look at us, and they're not going to understand why. Why, Daddy, are you doing this? I want you to care for me. I want you to take care of me, and you're not doing it. But ultimately, they sit their head on our shoulder after they get that shot. You've had the experience. The child then hugs you and puts his head on his shoulder because he knows. He trusts that whatever you allowed to happen must have been for his good. How much more should we trust our Heavenly Father? So when we do ask and we do seek and we do knock, according to this text, the door will be opened. Oh, Christian, are you pursuing your Father's will in prayer with persistent, urgent, confident, and expectant prayer? Are you asking? Are you seeking? Are you knocking on that door? If so, then you can have a firm assurance from God from today's text that it will be open. And when you peek in, you will behold wonderful things. For God is transforming us into the image of his Son. So Christian, believer in this room this morning... I want you to take hold of that text we read earlier. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. But don't use that passage or Matthew 7, 7 through 11 as some sort of uh, manipulation, manipulative attempt to get God to do what you want him to do. Instead, ask him to do a heavenly work in you, a work of making you into the man or woman you were called to be in light of the Sermon on the Mount a work of conforming you to the image of Christ. And when you do, you'll be asking according to his will, and he not only hears those prayers, he delights to answer them. Non-Christian this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, I just simply invite you to come and repent of your sin. Turn to Christ who bled and died on a cross to take the punishment for sinners and who made a way for sinners to be adopted into the family of God. Come and receive forgiveness of sin. And when you do, you receive access to the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you to forgive me of my sins this morning, anything I've done that, that, that misrepresented your word. But I pray that, that there was no confusion here this morning, that no one would leave here thinking that they can walk out of here and if they just ask for the right kind of car, you're going to give it to them. But instead, they would see that there are heavenly treasures, much greater than a new car, that you want to give them. There are treasures that involve things like being more loving, being a better husband, being a better wife, being patient, being merciful, being kind, being wiser. Lord, these are heavenly treasures. These are spiritual gifts. So, Father, we pray that, I pray that we would leave here this morning and that that would be what we leave with our confidence in, that we can ask these things and we know it's your joy to give them to us. It may not come quickly because we may not be sitting in the living room. We may have to get up off our feet and seek it harder. Or we may have to go and knock on the door and knock and knock and knock. But we can have confidence that you will open the door. If we're asking for the right thing, you will conform us into the image of your son because you've said in your word that it will happen. So we pray with great confidence. So we pray now in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who gives us access. In his name we pray. Amen.